If you are out doing these activities for the right reason and you are responsibly taking into account why that animal has died to, so that your life can continue, that's life. Heyo! Welcome back, my learners, laughers, and leapers. I've always been intrigued by wilderness and survival. In fact, one of my favorite books is Into the Wild, but I'll admittedly most likely be the first one to die if I was stranded. I can't recall ever catching my own meal in my lifetime. It's always been store-bought or prepared by someone else, and we live in an area surrounded by grocery stores, so it's really never been an issue. So I just want to explore that realm of what's in your backyard and how can you provide for yourself in a responsible, honest way. So I have a really special guest today that will Awaken the Hunter in Me and You, Mark Norquist. Joining me today is Mark Norquist, the founder of Modern Carnivore. So welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. Let's just start and throw it out there. What is Modern Carnivore and what was the impetus for the business? So Modern Carnivore is a primarily a digital platform, but it's events and different things uh, that are intended to introduce adults to the activities of hunting, fishing, and foraging as a way to get real food into, into their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, and what we do is we focus on people who don't have a background in those activities. And generally speaking, that's been a challenge in the past mm-hmm. because people would say, if they were an adult, I never grew up with it, how would I start now? And so what we do is we knock down those barriers and say, no, anyone and everyone who is interested in where their food comes from Mm -hmm. and for really taking more responsibility and connecting to food in real ways, uh, we'll, we'll introduce you to, to these activities and, and we'll, we'll help you, uh, help you do them. And where do you do that? So we do a lot of uh, digital media as a way to to introduce people to the idea and to educate them on how to start. So uh, at modcarn.com, which is our website, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a blog. So there's different stories from guest posters, uh, people who are writing different stories uh, about their journey, about cooking wild game, about doing a lot of different things. We've got a podcast. We do short films. We do events where we actually have people come to these half-day events or weekend-long events to really try their hand at uh, hunting for the first time or sometimes just coming to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, They may not be sure whether the, this is for them, but they want to learn more. Yeah. And that's what we're focused on is really having those conversations. And Mark is a marketing guru. That's why he's got all of his podcasts. He's got so many different media outlets that you can use. And actually, I didn't know about the podcast. When I found Modern Carnivore, I thought it was just a place where you could go and, like you said, learn about hunting and fishing. And then when I talked to Mark over the phone, he was like, well, have you listened to any of my podcasts? (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. So that was pretty cool to find out. And you've interviewed a lot of people that have had that experience of going from knowing nothing essentially about hunting or fishing or foraging, and now they're they feel like they're experts. Yeah, you know, and it's everybody's got their own journey, and it's and it's different. Sometimes it starts uh, at a young age. Sometimes it's the person's you know much older, mm-hmm. um, and they're doing different things. But everybody's got a really unique story to tell. And so that's like with the podcast, that's what I love doing is asking people questions and really digging out and and having them share their story so that other mm-hmm. people can go, wow, that's that's not only 
interesting to listen to, but it gives me a thought that maybe I could do it. Yeah. So let me tell you my story and my background, which is no experience hunting. My husband handed me a gun once to do trap shooting, and he was like, this is how you'd pull the trigger. Go. (laughs) So, and then my fishing background is also essentially none. I've taken a pull out on local lakes here, yeah. And but I don't know how to bait. I don't know how to actually reel in a fish. I mean, it's everything. So coming from someone with my background, I'd probably be a great fit for modern carnivores events. So what does that look like for somebody that's just starting out? No, absolutely. And and that's that's a perfect example. Actually when it comes to fishing, we've got a we've got a three part video on, on the website. It's called First one is how to catch a fish. Very simply. Costs about twenty dollars and oh. you can do it at your local pier okay. or dock, depending upon where you live and what you would call that. Mm-hmm. How to fillet a fish, which Ooh. is <laughs> something that feels a little bit intimidating, but it mm-hmm. doesn't need to be. Okay. And then how to cook a fish. And so what I love about that idea of fishing is it's a great way for somebody who has never done those activities before and really never harvested their own protein from the wild to to do it in a very simple way that's not overly daunting and have this amazing meal as a result of it to either have themselves or to share with others. And that's a pretty rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. It does seem kind of overwhelming though. So as you're taking people out and because you are actually physically showing them how to do some of this stuff, right? Yeah, so we, we do some events, but we also, at the same time, will partner with a lot of organizations because if, if, you can, if you can imagine, to take people out one at a time, it gets you quickly hit a, hit a wall of where you can only do so much on your own. Right. So we work with partner organizations, fishing, hunting groups, Department of Natural Resources, fishing nice. game agencies that have different introductory programs in place and connect people into those. And these mm-hmm. are some of the best people out there, some very knowledgeable experts and others who have maybe even recently gone through the process of learning to hunt or fish or forage themselves and really work with them to to get out in the field and uh, or on the water. Let's go on fishing. Sure. There's kind of three tiers to the business here. Where do you usually send people for that? Now, great, great question. So, you know, depending upon where you live, which region of the country, you might have a lake near you, you might have a river near you or a small stream, or you might live near the ocean. Each one of those is going to have a little bit of a different type of, of approach to how you're going to do it. But what I often say is is start simple, and that's either going to be bank fishing or shore fishing, as it's called, or surf fishing, really just going down to that b- body of water with a very simple rig. And so if here in Minnesota, we are blessed with tens of thousands of lakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are we, we no matter where you go in the state, you're near water. Right. And so we're very fortunate to be able to do that. So what I often talk about is you could go down to uh, a local sporting goods store, a hardware store, even Targets or, or Walmarts will have these simple little kits, uh, generally by by the company Zebco, where mm-hmm. you have everything for about twenty bucks that you need to get fishing. Go mm-hmm. go there, grab that that kit. You got a fishing rod, you got some lures, you got all the little tackle you need. There's instructions in there, or we've got the video at Modern Carnivore. 
you set it up and then generally speaking the easiest is going to be to use some bait and that's generally going to be like a minnow or a worm right. something like that and you can find a local body of water when you go to a sporting goods store to get get some get some bait just ask them hey what's a great place to to head out and just try to catch some panfish you know for most fresh water it's panfish which would be sunnies crappies is perch. that called panfish because you can fit them in a pan there you go okay yeah exactly so it's something that's easily cooked absolutely okay and they're easy to catch they're very they're voracious eaters and you can basically stand on shore take this simple little rod and rig toss out some bait and in a matter of minutes, start catching some fish. But you have to know the regulations because you some do are catch and release. Very good point. So you want to make sure you've got a license. Okay. <laughs> and and generally, so it's going to be more than twenty dollars, <laughs> right? The license you can get a one day license. Some states even have introductory first time user licenses. Oh, so cool. so exactly trying to keep those barriers low and and. State agencies. In North America, we have what's called the North American Conservation Model. What that means is all of the animals and fish that are out there that are that are game for people to go after are held in trust by our agencies at the state level. But really, it's we as the public are the quote-unquote owners of all of that. Um, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but in the past, if you go back to the early days of uh, us as a country, the aristocracy from Europe tried to bring that model to the U.S. where basically the landowner owned the game on that property. Mm-hmm. No, in America, everyone owns it. Nobody owns it, in essence. Okay. Everyone owns it, so nobody owns it. Okay. And so um, state agencies manage that and would say, okay— of this type of fish species, you can only take 10 or you can only take five of that fish. And they do that based right. on science. So they very carefully manage what the population can handle. And that's something that not a lot of people know is scientific management is part of that model. And every state agency does that. And so they're getting much better. They set the bag limits, if you will, for how many fish you can keep or how many animals you could hunt. But they also set license costs, et cetera, and they're getting a lot better at keeping those costs low or in sometimes zero for new people so that you can try it out and it's not going to cost you a whole lot. Yeah. So back to your point, yes, absolutely. <laughs> need to need to make sure you've got a license, need okay. to know what the limits are. Okay. Panfish, the numbers are generally going to be pretty, uh, they'll be high enough where if you want to go catch a few fish, you're probably not going to, to run into problems, but check your local laws on it. Sunfish is the most popular. Okay. And so, you know, it could be 10, 15, 20 fish that you could keep oftentimes. And so in that case, I would say, you know, go out and catch three or four and try it out and then go back. One of the recipe we have in that, in that three-part video series is, is making fish tacos because yes. that's the way you can... With sunfish? With sunfish, absolutely. Great. Sunfish or crappie. Those are two, two very common uh, warm freshwater fish that uh, are all around the country and are nice. easy to catch. So are you the one in the video cooking? Uh, so I am in it, but no, actually we have your hands are in it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Chef Lucas Leaf, who is our, our primary chef is cooking the fish in that video. Okay. Uh, He's a, he's an award-winning chef. That's uh, also a hunter and, uh, and an angler and, uh, does a great job and, and sharing a lot of different recipes, both simple and, and more complex and interesting. With the fish tacos, what I like about using that as a first recipe is that you don't need a whole lot of fish 
to create a, a nice meal for you mm-hmm. and and a, and a couple people. Okay. So just a few fish and and then just add all of your other ingredients in and you get the flavor of the fish, but you you don't need a whole lot like you would say on a just a standard shore lunch or fish fry. You're you're going to be eating the fish straight and and people are generally going to eat a larger volume or right. quantity. Right. Whereas if you got a tortilla, you've got maybe some greens, you got some tomatoes in there, etc. And just a few little chunks of fish. Exactly, really a few chunks of fish in yeah. there. And that's that's part of our philosophy also is when it comes to to eating wild game is not only are you getting better quality but generally speaking reducing quantity which is mm. which is going to be healthier for us as Americans. Yes, there's a concept out there. It's gosh, I wish I could remember the chef, but he's like if you want a whole dozen cookies, that's fine but you have to bake the cookie. And then by the time that you're done baking, or you know whatever it is that you've made, yeah. by the time that you're done, it's a process, yes. especially with wild game. And so you're probably not going to eat you know, four helpings full because it didn't come just like that. I think, yeah, when you are, I love that idea of, yeah. of the cookies. I, I've actually, I've tried to, I've tried to reduce my carb intake nice. and I, and I haven't been very good at this, but I've, I've told myself like, I want, I want to set it. So the only bread I eat is that is bread that I bake, Yeah, which just naturally is going to reduce bread. it. Oh man, I got the, have you ever done the New York times, no need bread recipe? No. In a, oh my gosh. I'll, I'll share it with you. Okay. It is phenomenal. It's so easy to do. And you end up with this bread that is this. When you say easy, I'm also not a cook. So that was the other thing that I wanted to ask you is like, if someone hasn't really, you know, they're a novice cook, is this going to be hard for them to create a meal from game? Not at all. There, there are some, there are some basic things that you need to be aware of when it comes to wild game. And this is generally more of along the lines of like venison and, and waterfowl and when like ducks and geese, when Mm -hmm. you're cooking them. But they they can be a bit more finicky than your typical grocery store fare. So I'm sure take take a take a simple comparison of beef steak versus venison. Okay, okay. beef steak. Wonder you know a good quality beef steak is going to be marbled with really nice fat. You look at it, it just looks amazing. You can you can overcook it. And it's and it's going to be more resilient. Okay, mm-hmm. it's still going to taste good just because of the nature of of what that meat is. Oftentimes with the marbling, when it comes to venison out from a deer, that is going to be very lean. Now, from a basics of of the 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 food value of it, it's going to be high in omega threes, so it's high in good fats. Nice. It's very lean, but it's also again a bit more finicky, where you can't. It won't be the degrees of freedom of when you what you how you could cook it isn't as wide, so you can't mess you shouldn't mess it up and cook it sort of into a into a hockey puck, and it's going to be. You'd be surprised what I've done with (laughs) things that I thought, oh, that'll never burn or whatever it is. I've burnt toast before, so you know you can only imagine. There are some basics though. There are just some basics when it comes to wild game, of like uh, and again like venison, where generally speaking, it's going to be high heat and quick. Or it's going to be low and slow, okay. like braising it, cooking it in a crock pot. And for different cuts like ribs or like neck meat or different things like that or shanks where they're wonderfully flavored meats, but you need to break down that connective tissue. And that's where a low and slow process is very easy to do. And it and you wind up with amazing table fare yeah. as a result. So let's talk about hunting a little bit. 
the vegan turned carnivore podcast that you hosted. That was fascinating to me because she, like it says in the episode title, she literally went from, you know, not eating meat to, okay, if I'm going to eat meat, I need to kill it myself. I'm not really sure why why you need to do that, but it was like her justification for eating it. So talk about that process of how that, that transformation for her. Relative to hunting and Robin Migliorini. Uh, yes. Robin, who is the vegan turned hunter. Fascinating story. Um, I, I couldn't wait to to sit down with her. She and I had met s- several years earlier, had connected online, she and her husband, because they were doing some writing online about their journey. And I just thought it was a great example of how somebody had really gone through this process full cycle of determining, of coming around to being a hunter where, you know, she grew up with no exposure to hunting or fishing. Her grandfather fished a little bit at their cottage up, and she grew up on the East Coast, Mm -hmm. up in, I think, New Hampshire. But otherwise, really had no exposure to it. Then around college age, her boyfriend at the time, now husband, uh, had introduced her to camping, and they started getting outside a little bit more, and she was connecting more with a lot of natural things, and actually, from a dietary standpoint, decided she wanted to be more responsible, and so she became a vegan, vegetarian ultimately a vegan she then started experiencing just some biological aspects of where she felt like her body was missing something yeah and she said you know she talks about it in that podcast of really like she didn't know what it was and it was it was really fascinating um but came around to the idea that that she really felt that she needed to have meat Meat. protein in her diet Mm -hmm. and that's our perspective is you know if, if, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, we just agree to disagree on how you're going to get protein into your, in your body. Everybody needs protein, yep. right? Mm-hmm. My belief is that responsibly sourced meat, which could be either hunted, fished, uh, foraging, getting some protein, but mostly hunting, fishing, or responsible purchasing through purveyors that might be local that are taking care of these animals in a proper way mm-hmm. is the best way to get protein into your system. It's the healthiest. It's the most responsible. It's respectful to those animals. Um, and I believe it's the way, the way we were built. And so, um, so Robin, you know, started questioning this and said, I think I need to have meat in my diet. But like you said, she, she decided if I'm going to, if I'm going to do that, I want to take full responsibility for it and mm-hmm. started exploring the idea of learning how to hunt. It's um, it's, it really, it really is. So she and her husband just started, you know, YouTubing some videos and, 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 and really self-taught, uh, figured out how to do it. And she's not the only one. I know others. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I have respect for everybody and their perspective on it. Like I say, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, we're just going to agree to disagree. <laughs> um, but I think there are, there are a lot of people that, that do come around to, to the idea that we have, which is, you know, if you are out doing these activities for the right reason and you are responsibly taking into account why that animal has died to, so that your life can continue, that's life. That's life, and it's and it's the most honest way to do it, and the most responsible way to do it. And I would argue is one of the most rewarding ways to do it. Yeah. And there are story after story of people who have started to hunt that go 
quickly, much deeper, I would say, than even I've gone. So I've hunted my, I've hunted fish my entire life yeah. since I was a real young kid. Mm-hmm. And we did a, in my garage last uh, December, we had a butchering uh, little party where <laughs> I'd gotten a couple deer and I invited over all these new hunters to take part in the butchering if oh they'd never gosh. been part of it before. What's interesting is I, for a long time, thought that that was something that people would have a really tough time with and would want to stay away from. And in reality, some people are saying that's the most rewarding step in the entire process. Rewarding, yes, but disgusting also, yes. <laughs> uh, that's And my husband and I were talking about this the other day. If I had to go out with you right now and do all those steps to prepare a meal hunt it, kill it, gut it, yep. skin it, all yep. that stuff. I think the hardest part for me would be the cleaning. It it can be challenging. And I'll tell you, even myself, sometimes I had an experience, oh my gosh, this is probably 20 years ago, when I was up in Alaska fishing salmon. And these were big salmon that we were catching. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So when you're cleaning them, it's a lot of stuff coming <laughs> okay. out. Okay, yeah, And I was eating right after. I was eating, eating them. <laughs> And I found it was a it was a moment of self realization of at certain times I need a little distance of time in between the actual gutting, cleaning, and sure. and actually Did you eating. Get sick? I didn't get sick. No, it was just sort of a just a, a sensation of ooh, I'm not sure if I'm if if this is appetizing right now because I had just gutted <laughs> yeah. out these these large well, fish. And okay? that's that's the other thing is seeing. Seeing exactly where it came from, we were at a pig roast at a party a couple weekends ago and seeing this giant hog and then literally taking a plate into the gut, it was like, ugh, I don't know that. Otherwise, it probably would have tasted really good, but I just could not get over that. And I think it's okay to to acknowledge that and to talk about it. Like I said, it, for me, it was hunted and fished my entire life. I've had experiences like that. And I think sometimes they're situational. I don't know what or why. Sometimes it's difficult. But at the end of the day, that's the reality of the situation, of you looked at it straight in the yeah, eye, right, okay? Right, And if you really want to be honest about it, that is where meat comes from. And and the problem in today's society is we're so removed from it. We are buying shrink-wrapped meat under cellophane in a grocery store that looks nothing like where it originated from. But I also think people don't want to see what it looked like when it just came out. Sometimes people don't. You're right. <laughs> and I would challenge people who don't want to see it to become a vegan. No. Well, <laughs> well, if you don't like it, you better not eat it. There's a, I mean, I think you just igno- need to acknowledge that uh, ignorance is bliss. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and if you want to take that approach, I understand that because it can be difficult. Mm-hmm. But what I find is that more people than not want to be more honest and transparent in, in understanding where their food's coming from and take responsibility. If I'm going to eat meat, I want to know where it's coming from, and I want to make sure that it's responsibly sourced, either directly through me or like my friend Matt up in Renshaw, Minnesota, who has Weicker Acres. He's raising his own pigs and taking care of them very humanely, and these this pork that comes off of these pigs is amazing. <laughs> and so that's where I'll get my pork. <laughs> 
it's so funny though it seems like such a twisted concept like he takes really really good care of them and they think like oh wilbur like this is the good life and then chop and that's and then their life ends and that and that is the thing that is the idea that it's tough for people to get their head around um in terms of how can when it comes to hunting oftentimes is how can you love these animals and kill them that's a tough thing to get get your head around and i get that um and that's something we talk about a lot and and i would say most hunters i know when they take the life of an animal it's a mixed emotion yeah it's even if they've been doing it for years and years it's a mixed emotion because you do mourn the loss of that life but you're also thankful because you you know that this is the, this is the way we are built. We need to we need to have protein in our diet. Where are we going to get it? And if I was an animal, I often say, would you want to be raised in a pen or would you want to be a wild animal out enjoying the beauty of nature right. and then at the moment you're quickly you know, you quickly die. Yeah, and that's, right. and that's it's the not goal. A, it's not suffering. Exactly. And I did hear you talk about that on one of your episodes saying the point where you no longer have those mixed emotions, that's when you should stop hunting. Maybe it was the person you were interviewing. Somebody interviewed. I don't know. Yep, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yep. But but still, it was a really good point. It's like you you feel responsible for that, and that was the circle of life. Exactly. It, <laughs> and it, it is sad, but it's That's okay. life. That's yeah. life. You know, the natural world is a brutal, violent place without us. Yeah. Just the animal, the animal kingdom. If you look at, at, at animals and how they interact together, especially with carnivore, carnivorous animals, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. And, and hunters do everything to do a responsible, ethical, clean kill that is as instantaneous as possible. So do you think that being killed by a human is the best way for an animal to die? I wouldn't say it's the best way. I would say it's one of the ways. And I think it... It, everything that a good ethical hunter does is to make it the most humane type of death possible. Yeah. Is it a perfect scenario? No, there are a million variables that can come into play. Right. But again, I would say it is, it's, it's done in the right way. It's a very ethical and humane way to do it. Yeah. Hunting, uh, foraging, and fishing for you, are they do you consider them laborious or is it like therapeutic and meditative for you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Great question. Um, absolutely the latter. And that's, and that's the thing. These activities are, you know, the whole process is, is just rich with experience at every level from researching and learning how to, to do these activities and really having your eyes open to the natural world and how it works, to getting out into the field or onto the water, to then again going through the full harvest harvesting process, which I've got interviews with people where it surprised me where they said that was the most rewarding part. These are urban people who've grown up in an urban environment and never understood where meat came from. And for them to, to see an animal turn into meat and understand that intimately it was great and then obviously the meal itself yeah which is which is phenomenal and and part of that also sharing the stories the camaraderie that's part of that that's within within these groups of new hunters old hunters people telling stories sharing new stories and old ones but 
you know, I'll give you an example when you use you, you ask, is it is it meditative? Is it therapeutic? Yeah. For me, all of them are in different ways, but fishing is a great example of stream fishing. Um, I was down. I used to I used to fly fish a lot, and in recent years, with the advent of young kids, etc., it's <laughs> tough to get out. I hear that. <laughs> you know how that goes. Yeah. And so I hadn't been out in a number of years, and I was out fly fishing. My brother and I were fishing the full day, and I hit this section of the stream. We we hiked way back up on this stream where I was off by myself. I didn't know where anyone else was. And it's a little disconcerting. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> Not knowing where you were. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I knew you just I knew disappear. I, I, exactly. I know I knew how, how I could get down the stream and get back to where I needed to be. But um, up in this area I'd never been before. And I looked and there was there was this deep riffle along along the far, far bank of the of the stream and I thought that looks like a good spot for trout. And I got into this this mode of, of I started I started catching some trout over there, one after another after another. And in a matter of minutes, that was a stressful time of life, work was really stressful. I literally felt my plate myself go into this physical, mental, spiritual oh place gosh. where I was just in the moment. And oh, doing cool. this, and that's where something like like fishing and the activities you're doing truly is uh, a meditative experience. And and you're in this amazing of environments, mm-hmm. most amazing of environments, of where you're just the natural beauty, and you're part of it. And that's why oftentimes I I talk about how a lot of people who are curious about and who we talk to and are interested in exploring the idea idea of these activities are people who maybe camp or they boat or they canoe right now um they're hikers climbers they're doing activities out in out in nature but i often say you're 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 observing right this is where you're an active participant exactly you become an active participant and you immerse yourself into that natural world in a different way and that's where it's very it's very different Mm -hmm. and it's uh it's a wonderful experience at the end of this episode, I've got an outtake. I ask Mark if he's ever been threatened by something in the wilderness, and his answer is pretty funny. So either stay tuned to the very end, or you can scroll to the end to listen. Back to Robin uh, and her story of becoming a hunter. I wanted to talk about what she initially hunted, because that's probably a good indicator for most people that are just starting out. What do you hunt? Yeah. So, you know, and, and I'm trying to remember back because we recorded that a few years she ago. Said rabbit. Did she do rabbit? rabbit yeah. Okay. And squirrels. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely I encourage that a lot of times is small game hunting. And that's something that, that it's be, becoming more popular again. I myself haven't done much of it since I was a kid. And that's generally been the hunting community perspective on it. Yeah. A lot of times has been, you know, you know, you do that when you're young and then you grow beyond it. And now you go after <laughs> the big game. Um, but it's a great way to get started because it's, it's easy. It's cost effective. You, you don't have to have have a lot of the gear and 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 things that that become expensive but and they're can, fast they they are they can be you, now you can use a shotgun and make it makes it a little bit easier rather than a rifle like a 22 but a t- 22 is simple also a lot of times rabbits or squirrels though once you find them they're going to freeze at some point and they're going to stop okay okay and they're and they're going to and be that's like the point at which and that's the point is w- at which you want to take take, okay. the, take the game okay um 
you could take the uh, take a running shot, but um, I would I would encourage for new hunters to do it when they're stopped. Again, they're going to be like, "Ooh, he can't see me." Um, <laughs> when you can, yeah. Um, but what's great about yeah, rabbit, squirrel, and the, and small game. Generally speaking, sometimes it's going to be easier. Now that being said, a lot of times you'll you'll come back empty-handed. Um, but oftentimes um, you're going to be successful. And it's great table fare. Rabbit and squirrel can be some of the best. And really? you you wrinkle your yeah, nose I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm cringing. Um, yes. Well, and I was wondering about that. Then, if they're some of the best game, why don't we see them at restaurants more often? Really good question. And so that gets into the North American model and <laughs> how game is managed in uh, the U.S. Without going too deep, going back to the turn of the of the of the twentieth century, been back in the early nineteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, there was market hunting that occurred in the U.S. And what I mean by that is there was a market for food and for feathers and for for um, fur and and hides that people took advantage of, and there were market hunters that went west. And primarily, a, a lot of the a lot of focus was on beavers, and bison, and birds that had feathers that were very much sought after for hats, women's hats that were East Coast <laughs> nice. and in Europe, very popular at the okay. time. The result was certain species were decimated and near extinction. Wow! Some species have gone extinct, and so at that time, um, hunters, the likes of Teddy Roosevelt. Pinchot and others stepped forward and said, we as the hunting community are going to self-regulate and bring these animals back from extinction. And how we're doing that is we're eliminating market hunting. So to your question about why don't you see it in restaurants is because it's illegal to serve wild game in a restaurant. Really? Yes. So now why is it illegal? Okay, because then you would create a market to where people would try to harvest as much as possible if they if they wanted to sell that wild game. So what you see in a restaurant when you see venison or you see bison or you see elk, that is farm raised. So those are actually hmm. penned animals that are raised very much similar to but... to beef. I guess you said you can't do it in restaurants, but you see wild-caught salmon. I can't really think of anything else that's wild-caught in grocery stores, but I'm sure there's others. So, so th- that's legal. Correct. That is legal. So so this is relative to hunting, but also fishing in certain cases. So freshwater fish here in Minnesota, you see walleye on the menu a lot, okay? Mm-hmm. Walleye is our state fish. It right. is the most sought-after fish. If you see it on the menu, it's coming from one of two places generally. It's coming from Canada or it's coming from the Red Lake Indian Reservation where they have an industry where they as a sovereign nation have decided they will sell walleye. Hmm. But you or I could not go out to Lake Minnetonka here, catch some walleye and go sell it. That is illegal. Okay. Do you so, wish that there were some changes in that? No, it's a wonderful thing. You like it? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's 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 foundational to the model we have in America, and it's foundational to effective management of game species. So going it's back good to conservation practice, it is exactly. And hunters are focused, and and a lot of people don't realize this. 
hunters are some of the original conservationists. And like I said, that example of Teddy Roosevelt and others who stepped forward and said, we are going to self-regulate. We're going to self-tax all for conservation. Respecting the practice and making sure. Self-tax. Yes. That is crazy. Yes. It's called Pittman-Robertson, 1936. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it still exists today. 11% on all guns, ammunition, archery equipment that is to the tune of billions and billions of dollars all going towards conservation. No way. Yes. This and is a nationwide Nationwide. Practice? Yes, it is How mandated. How cool is that? Collected by the federal government and then doled out to each of the states based on population and participation in hunting and fishing activities. Wow. So, yes. That is responsible. Isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so that's where, you know, we've got, those are the types of conversations we, we have a lot. And, and again, we have a we, we do these half day retreats called the Modern Carnivore Experience, and I had uh, a large consumer electronics company, um, <laughs> a retired executive, who came with her yoga partner okay. um, last year to one of our events. Interesting. Yes, and the yoga partner sat there with her arms crossed. And if I could have put a thought bubble above her, it would have been, what the heck am I doing? (laughs) I hate this. Why am I here? I'm supporting my friend. And what's interesting is we we start the day off with some discussion in classroom where my friend Kyle from U.S. Fish and Wildlife was there talking about the history of conservation and hunting because he is responsible for doling out those dollars. (laughs) Yeah. And so he knows it very intimately. And what was interesting was seeing this person's body language change throughout the morning where it went from arms crossed to arms to their side (laughs) with a quizzical look (laughs) to some head Wide open, (laughs) hugging arms. (laughs) And we did after at the end of these events, we we do a little. We, we just sit down and we talk with people and we say, what what was the biggest surprise? What did you learn, etc. And she said, I had no idea that hunters had anything to do with conservation. That's awesome. So when you talked about what they did to turn around populations of wildlife and to manage them responsibly mm-hmm. back in the turn of the last century, I had no idea about that story. And then she proceeded to say, I actually think I might consider learning to hunt? (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) Question mark, exactly. And you could see on her face, she's like, are these words really coming out of my mouth? (laughs) But Um, that's that's your job. Your job is to turn these people into, they really enjoy going out into nature and doing it themselves. Absolutely. And at least, even if they decide they're not, it's not for them to do, they have an awareness and an understanding of what hunters are about, that it isn't the caricature that so often is portrayed, which is a slob or a hillbilly hunter right? Um, who's just out, you know, drinking a case of beer and, and shooting things up. Uh, which, by the way, Mark is very, he's clean shaven. <laughs> he doesn't look like a slob. He's not wearing camo. Sometimes. <laughs> just not today. Yeah, I'll take a picture of him when he's out hunting. <laughs> Might change your mind. I want to get to foraging too. First of all, what can we forage in Minnesota and can we do it year round? There are a ton of things you can forage. And that's something where, you know, I've got some core basics that I personally do. But I also, again, am always uh, bringing in people who really know different areas of foraging and have a good grasp on everything that's out there. But you could truly forage year-round year if you find the right things. Obviously, 
from December through March. <laughs> it's pretty tough here. Um, I was going to say more like November <laughs> to April. Right. But Well, but. you know, you've got, and, and that's where there's an ebb and flow with all these activities. And, and I consider myself very much a generalist. So there are outdoors men and women who are highly specialized. I'm very much a generalist. I enjoy that because that's just sort of looking at what's in season and 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 being part of that process. So sometimes it's foraging, sometimes it's hunting, sometimes it's fishing. So, you know, again, during the winter months, generally speaking here in Minnesota, but I would say that the primary activity would be ice fishing, which, <laughs> yeah. um, which again, is one of those things of where um, a lot of people look at that and go, wow, that looks miserable um does modern carnivore offer ice fishing yeah we're actually we're doing some different things this winter we've got a special it's a private event but we're, we're going to be taking some newbies out and doing a, a fishing uh, event out here on the lake near us oh. and preparing the fish right there on the on the ice with uh, chef lucas sign me up so okay okay definitely <laughs> i was going to ask you what what i should sign up for knowing my background of essentially nothing yeah <laughs> So, so there are a lot of things coming up. We've got, you know, we've got some webinars coming up um, that if you go to modcarn.com forward slash webinar okay. is uh, really a discussion similar to what we're having here. That's something we'll do ongoing. Uh, the Modern Carnivore Experience are these half-day retreats. We don't have one on the calendar right now. But then we're also doing a lot of other video-based things and, and things online. So you could just, you know, slowly self-paced educate yourself on, on different things. But yeah, I mean, back to your back to your question on foraging. We're in the middle of the season right now, but you know, starting in the spring, uh, there are fiddlehead ferns, Ooh. which are which so are fancy. Frond, uh, frond, small fronds or, or little, little tidbits of, of ferns as they just start to grow. We've got a recipe yeah. and some pictures out of Modern Carnival we can, okay. we can link to, and you you chop them off when they're curled up. They look so cool. So fiddleheads are out. Ramps, which are which are um, wild onions, which are phenomenal, and so those you know we're talking April, early May timeframe. So just as as things are starting to to pop here in our climate, these wild wild ramps. When on that video, how to cook cook a fish, where we're doing the fish tacos. Yeah, we were out in the woods filming, and all of a sudden Lucas turns around and goes, "Oh, we've got wild ramps here!" So we just, just added it to in. the and just threw them in. Um, it's something that you want to do responsibly because a lot of times people will take the whole plant uh, and that's that's not a responsible way to do because then it won't come back. And so you want to leave some of the plant there, but the greens are really good. It's just like a, like a, like a green onion and so, really flavorful. I know that you mentioned in one of your episodes that um, the most responsible way to start foraging is to just have some resource, whether it's online or a book or whatever, but to know what you can and can't eat because some of this stuff can be poisonous. Absolutely. I mean, it is one of those things you have to be very careful on. Um, like I say, my my knowledge um, is is very average, and I will go out and there are certain things that I just know and I'm comfortable with. Again, f- fiddleheads, uh, ramps, um, morel mushrooms, mm-hmm. uh, chanterelle mushrooms. Which, by the way, morels, can you eat them before cooking them? Can they be raw? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, and when it comes to raw mushrooms, I'm not sure about that. The cooking can definitely change the the chemical makeup of certain certain things. That's a good question. I always cook them, so I guess I would just okay. say I don't have an answer <laughs> yeah. for that. <laughs> Better not tell the audience. <laughs> exactly, sure, try right, it out. Exactly. Um, 
Better the, safe than sorry when it comes yeah, to mushrooms. Exactly. <laughs> the first time that I had heard of morel foraging yeah. was my in-laws. They said, we're going shrooming. I was like, wait, start over. Okay, what kind of shrooming are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, they were going hunting for morels. Did you go out with them? No. <laughs> this is just one of those things where I'm like... You know, you have to be pushed out of your comfort mm-hmm. zone. And I think it's it's important to go out with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. So Modern Carnivore would be a great place Absolutely. to Absolutely. You know, my my, uh, my wife loves eating morels. Okay. And this, just this last spring just started getting into it where she's like, she she's was shrooming. on a mission. She was out shrooming. <laughs> exactly. Called up a friend, said, we're going to go out shrooming. She had an interest in it too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we found, and you can find them everywhere. We found them in our yard. We found no them. Way. On, yeah, exactly. There's a spot right down, right down <laughs> the way from our house, right near this pond where I f- usually oh. find them every spring. Okay. And uh, our kids get into it. It's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, morels are sort of your, your typical like treasured mushroom that everybody just goes nuts about. Yeah. But there are a lot of other things. You know, you got in the spring, you got wild asparagus. Uh, here in Minnesota, black cap raspberries start to come in around June Ooh. time frame. Um, you know, chanterelles are another mushroom. Sort of, they look like they're very apricot in color. Um, that go through. You know, summer start around July. They're very, they would be out in the woods right now. Really? Chick- yeah. Oh yeah. Chicken of the woods, which is which which goes through September, which grows along oak trees a lot of times. Lobster mushrooms. Now this month. We're getting into blueberries. Yeah. Uh, my best blueberry picking story was when I was younger. I was I was with my best friend. Uh, we were, I don't know, probably 13, 14 years old and staying at his grandparents' place up in northern Minnesota. And they said, we're going picking today. And so we drove about an hour and a half down dirt roads wow. through the woods, <laughs> opened up into this like, field. Where are we? Oh, my gosh. Exactly. It was about the size of a football field. Whoa. And all you needed to do was sit down at one spot on that field, and you could sit there for 45 minutes Jeez. in one spot and pick. And we just picked bucket after Were there bucket. other people out there? No. That oh was their gosh. special spot. How and you, cool. Yeah, I could never find it, and it was very much a special spot that they knew of. And that's one of those things. It's sort of fun. It's a fine line when it comes to fishing and it comes to morels are very much people guard their their places very, very carefully. Fishing is so the same So you have to have like way. a connection? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's one of the challenges, to be honest, with getting people into these activities is people do very much guard their spots. Huh. But it's sort of the fun of it too. You know, because yeah. you know it's 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 you're on the hunt of of uh, of trying to find these things. And yeah, when I'm you coming over them. to your pond. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know where you live. No. <laughs> um, there's so many so many things in all of the warmer and, and getting in the cool seasons. Like in the fall, highbush cranberries uh, are are in season, and so nice. like September October, and up where I hunt uh, waterfall, there's there's thick areas, and so they're very tart berry. But make amazing, um, you could make pies, you could. I generally make jam out of them. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it's so it's so good. And so like I've still got some jars from last year where uh, Jamie Carlson, who has a regular uh, recipe column on, on Modern Carnivore, he and I made uh, a highbush cranberry apple butter out of some oh, apples up at our gosh. cabin that we harvested. Uh, made uh, just a straight up highbush cranberry jam. And so you take that. And here's one of the things he does a lot. And, and I've been learning from him. 
take that that highbush cranberry jam and you take that with some butter and some other and and some other oils and you make a sauce out of a pan sauce out of that and you have that with the wild game now you're oh getting gosh. ingredients that are in the same area that yes. work together and just blend wonderfully see you're blessed because you have the chef at your side telling you what flavors are going to work well together but he shares that with the whole modern carnivore community it's true that's what he's always talking about and that's where you know it's it's it, that's the type of stuff I love to bring people along and say, hey, this is something I'm learning. You know, so I, I, well, I've got, again, 40 years experience doing these things. I'm learning something new every day. And that's what's fun about it. It truly is a lifelong activity. You'll never master it. Yeah. And uh, I love sharing those new things and say, here's something new I've learned. And, And you might find it interesting. Yeah. So like with that, you know, getting the savory and the sweet together in these wild, these wild flavors and then blending them together. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, though, the and for myself included, it's a time investment. You know, you have to be able to set aside hours. Like you said, you drove an hour and a half to pick these blueberries. Right. Then took another probably couple hours in the field and then bringing them home and cooking. I mean, that could be a day's worth of work. It can be. And that's where what I would say, you know, again, um, I'm a parent. You are, too. We've got yeah. we both got young kids. What I'm always trying to do is incorporate multiple activities together. So, you know, we just, again, went out to Montana on a family trip a few weeks ago. Okay, we did this long 3,200-mile tour. Exactly. We put a lot of miles on the (laughs) car. He's rolling his eyes. Oh, oh my God. Exactly. But anytime we're going out on a hike, we were looking around saying, okay, what are what are the forageable items? And then when we were when we were going into the parks, it was, hey, can we bring the fishing rod along and try to go fishing? Fun. And so you turn it into this fun activity for the kids. Are they into it? Oh my gosh, they love it. Yeah. Now now um, from a foraging standpoint, um, this is something we talked about the other podcast with General Zell. Um one of the things I, I want to do here with Jenna soon and, and, and others is talk about, you know, urban foraging for a lot of a lot of plants that are that are out there. So you talk about out yeah. in your yard here, right. you know, the, the beauty of I have got creeping Charlie and weeds growing all over my yard. I'm sure my neighbors don't like that. <laughs> But I don't use a whole lot of weed killer, and and for a lot of reasons, not least of which is the health of our kids. If you're seeing a lot of the, yep. the class action lawsuits that are going on right now, we don't know what these herbicides are doing. There you go. Yeah. That creates actually opportunities of where, whether it's dandelions or a lot of different greens that are naturally growing. I, I did a post a few weeks ago where it did uh, harvest a garlic mustard. Do you have any garlic mustard in your yard? Who knows? Let's go Exactly. Let's go check and see. I bet you do. And I made a pesto, a garlic mustard pesto. And then I froze ice cube trays of it. Oh my gosh. I made it with a pasta. It was wonderful. Did you have to do some research or were you just like, I'm just going to try this? Yeah. I mean, I just experimented. I don't... So a lot of times for myself, we put a lot of recipes out, a lot of great recipes. I myself, when I cook, I follow them sometimes, but generally I'll just be pretty loose. I don't follow a whole lot of recipes. I'm like, yeah, let's try this out. Yeah. And it turned out. So those are the fun (laughs) things, you know, to do that are just something different. Exactly. Experimenting with different things. But yeah, I mean, there's where garlic mustard, it's an invasive plant and you can get it everywhere it grows everywhere i was gonna ask you about that because you had mentioned that you have black walnut Mm -hmm. in your backyard and so some of this stuff you can just find if you just walk out your back door absolutely i've got make a meal out of about eight black walnut trees in my yard and so they are starting to drop right now what do you do with them and so (laughs) it's a it's a interesting process they're they're a 
a little smaller than yeah, about half the size of a tennis ball, maybe. Mm-hmm. Look like a tennis ball. They're green. Oh, and they're covered in green. Okay, okay. yeah. And so and so they drop. It is a tennis ball. And and you you peel them open, peel that skin off, and um, underneath you have a very hard nut, if you will, in the that's inside a shell. That shell is rock hard, and so that's the <laughs> challenge with them. But inside you open it up, it's like a walnut, like a regular. Well, how walnut. are you cracking them? So. There are a lot of different ways. It's, it's funny. I literally was just thinking about this very thing this morning <laughs> because I need to figure out a way to, to do a faster rate. Right now, I'm generally doing a hammer one by one. <laughs> oh I mean, yeah, they're hard. Um, but there are people who will uh, drive over them <laughs> with their no car. No way. <laughs> and then so, the, whatever's inside, yeah, that still just, stays intact? Yeah, I mean, it's going to, you're going to, that's the thing is with that is you're going to break the nut probably more so than you're not going to have whole drive nuts. Yeah. The car. <laughs> but uh, it's, it, and the other thing is, is make sure so that you, if you are, if you're cleaning them, wear gloves. I did not the first time. They stain your hands. <laughs> So bad, black and green. A lot of people don't know this. Here's a little fun tidbit. I believe the Declaration of Independence is written with walnut ink. No way. Yeah, so used to make ink out of the walnut. Oh my gosh. Okay, question from a listener. Liz Marquis, what would your final supper be? What's uh, what's on your plate? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow, that's a deep question. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it would probably be a compliment of venison backstrap cut into small chops that you just sear in a cast iron pan with a little bit of butter and or some high smoke point oil like a grapeseed oil is the most amazing red meat you'll ever have yeah and the healthiest so healthy for you high in omega-3s dense b12 rich lean protein and it tastes wonderful you know so something like that's He's great like but, salivating yeah. <laughs> but venison that, oh. um, i love fish too what I mean, would just, what would your sides be my sides with that um i mean ideally if we want to go all wild <laughs> would be would be um wild asparagus and mm-hmm. morel mushrooms sauteed and, and over the top of them nice that would be that would be right there that's that's it that's that in, that in is all it. reality this is your last meal. You would not buy anything off the shelves. This would be all natural. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. No, that would be. That's that a would true be testament to your dedication <laughs> to taking all natural wild products. It's uh, it's it's one of those things. I would say it's something that I'm continually striving towards. Am I always that that way? Am I able to do it? No. If it's my last meal, darn sure I'm gonna I'm gonna make it that way. But it's uh, you know it's 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 a wonderful thing to strive toward. You know it's when uh, we talk about real food a lot is is what is a term I'll use yeah. a lot of times, and that really comes out of you know the original idea for modern carnivore was back when I was I was doing a lot of work with the organic and natural foods industry. You know a number of years ago, natural became a popular term to use on product packaging and and product name. I mean, it's very generic. It didn't you probably have, hated that. Yeah, it didn't have any standardization. Okay. I mean, yeah. and so people could use it to call just about anything natural. Yeah. You know, similarly, I guess real has no formal definition. The USDA has not codified the word real. But what I consider real is you know food that ideally is is wild and natural and 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 minimally influenced by humans. So 
whether it's animals, whether it's fish, whether it's birds, whether it's foraged uh, plants, mushrooms, uh, berries, etc. It's things that were just here that if we weren't here as humans, they'd be doing just fine. Mm -hmm. And we just are able to tap into that in a very natural way and have that sustain us. And so that's something I'm always striving towards is how to how to get more and more of real food into into my diet. So there was another question that my mom had asked, and that was debunking some things for someone that's just starting out. Like, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you get for someone a beginner? Sure, sure. You bet. For somebody who is not familiar with the world of hunting, fishing, foraging, I think especially when it comes to hunting, like we touched on a little bit earlier, there are caricatures of a hunter being, um, you know, I have people who've come to events that say, you know, I always thought hunters were just rednecks, white trash, <laughs> exactly, you know, a lot of things. Um, and are there cases and, and examples of where they've maybe seen through media or personally experienced a negative, uh, negative? Absolutely. That's out there with everything. We all sure. know that. We all know that. But I will tell you, the vast majority of people within the hunting, fishing, foraging community are some of the best people I know. Some of the most caring, thoughtful, um, hardworking people who participate in these activities for the right reasons, which are, you know, again, honesty, connection, uh, camaraderie Mm -hmm. with people. I'm involved. An excuse to get away from your family. (laughs) My husband, he's got an annual trip that he goes, he does hunting and fishing trips separately, but no women allowed. (laughs) I'm sure that's a rule for a lot of people. It is. You know, you bring up, you bring that up. And actually that's, that's a great, that's a great point to discuss right now. So what are the, the, the misconceptions or the ideas? I don't think that's a misconception on it being good old boys, if you will, traditionally, it has been a lot of respects. My deer camp, where I go every year, and it's my family and cl- and a few close friends, that is really uh, a camp that's been going for over 100 years, going back to my grandfather. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the same location, little one-room log cabin, our hunting shack, no electricity, no running water. Um, <laughs> there are traditions wow. there, and it is only guys, okay. young young boys to, to old men. And that's just the way it's been. Now, I would not say that's right or wrong. It's just the reality of where it is. A lot of the people that we introduce to hunting within modern carnivore are women. And I love that. I love that. Um, And there are cases actually where a lot of times, and I've had a lot of discussions with women where they prefer to have women mentoring them versus guys. I get that too. And so I don't think... I think there's a time and a place to have separate men doing their thing, women doing their their thing. That being said, we also have tons of examples of where we're doing it together, mm-hmm. and they're great too. And I think they're I think they're all acceptable and they're all right, and everybody can choose the way the way they want to do it. Would you rather be with men, be with women, be, be mixed on this? And they all work. Um, there are a lot of women that are coming in. It's one of the growth areas within the demographic of hunting. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, well, well, there's sure there are examples of, of good old boy slob hunters. Absolutely. The majority <laughs> are not. And, and you can pick and choose who you associate with. 
And like I say, these are some of the most caring and thoughtful and giving individuals I've ever seen. The, the number of people that I know that donate tons and tons of their time to help people learn these activities is amazing. And they do it all purely out of kindness of their heart and their desire to introduce people to these activities that they're passionate about. Well, and you're part of that too. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm, I'm trying to do everything <laughs> I can. my best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Any other key takeaways that you want to leave the listeners with, whether it's about modern carnivore or just the general practice of being out in the wild? Yeah, you know, I mean, I would say if this is something that's intriguing to you, the idea of harvesting your own protein, I would say just start exploring different things, whether it's at, at our blog, our podcast, what have you, or any anything else you might find out there, somebody you know. I would say if you know somebody who hunts or fishes or forages, go ask them, why do they do it? Um, what do they love about it? And just start having conversations. And I think you'll find find that if it's if it you're drawn to it, you'll naturally find pathways to get more and more involved. We've got a lot of resources at modcarn.com. I'd love if people go there. But um, <laughs> Absolutely, and listen to the podcast too. <laughs> it is fascinating. I've learned so much in the last week than I really have in years. So thank you so much for sharing your story and for bringing Modern Carnivore to life and everything else that you've brought to the table. It's been awesome. Thank you, Very Shannon. educational. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Have you ever been threatened or had a scary experience out in the wilderness? Um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we were shooting a film. Um, so we do a lot of film production. We were, we were shooting one up in the Boundary Waters a few years ago. We were out grouse hunting, and we were way back, way back deep, pretty deep in, in, in the wilderness. <laughs> and um, saw these, these two wolf cubs out in a big field playing i had never seen this before and we just sat there watching the 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 main main star of the of the film and myself we were standing there we were out exploring some new areas the whole crew was 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 back down the trail maybe a half mile and um we were exploring some new areas to to look at and we saw these wolves and it was just fascinating to see these beautiful midday sunlight on the on a plane and then they disappeared I couldn't see him, and so I let out a little little whistle to oh, to see gosh. if they would pop up. And about half the distance between <laughs> where they were at and where we were standing, a whole pack no. of adults <laughs> stand up and started coming at us. What do you do? What <laughs> we, did you do? We got out of there. <laughs> you just ran. Yeah, we got out of there. I'm Aren't like, you not supposed so, to run? Well, you, you, the thing is, is wolves are not going to. You're not going to have an, a situation with with wolves. The reality oh, no. is, Look at there's Belle and Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So real life. Disney is the yeah. problem. Exactly. <laughs> Bambi, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. etc. No, you're you're generally you're not going to. There are so few um, situations of wolves attacking humans they're okay. they're just nearly non-existent no we just got out of there uh but <laughs> we yeah, got out we of there got, we got out of there <laughs> but uh but yeah it's uh that's probably the only one other than that i literally i can't think of any situations where t- to be honest and i and like i say i've been i've been out in the woods hunting for more than 40 years now well knock on wood i mean but if you 
came across a bear or something. You do have a gun, so I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got some protection. That is, that is the thing. You have you you generally will have something that you're able to defend yourself with. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. You know, we were just my family and I. We were just out in Montana, up in the glacier area, which is the heart of grizzly bear country. Oh. And we saw a couple grizzlies. Did Nothing up really? real close. Yeah, but that's She's definitely terrifying. something that I'm not too familiar with and definitely makes me makes me a bit nervous head bear spray along you know just to to be ready but um, i'd be going head to toe like (laughs) everywhere i walk just so you know you don't spray it on yourself there's there is a story of a grandmother that thought that that's what you did so she sprayed her kids with it before they went to bed camping uh and no it's bad it's like it's pepper spray it's pepper spray yeah so don't do that we're just the wise got it (laughs) Duly noted. Okay. This is Learn, Laugh, Leap.